On the Pilot TV podcast this week, we're wondering what if, with the Marvel series of the same name on Disney+, Plus, going undercover with Neve Algar in Deceit on Channel 4, and getting into the squared circle with Bjorn Ironside in Stars Play's new wrestling drama, Heels. I'm James Dyer, and welcome to the Pilot TV podcast, a show that has found an all-new way of dealing with mixed TV opinions this week, thanks to a Norwegian colloquialism provided by one of our listeners. Martha Persdatter introduced me to the following, which I will undoubtedly mangle. Smacken er zombacken delt ito, which, when pronounced properly, literally means taste is like an arse divided in two, which is now officially my favourite saying. Uh, and speaking of which, the two erudite buttocks in Pilot TV's very own Bakken are here with me today, Boyd Hilton and Terry White. How are we both? Wow. Hang on, that, that presents taste as binary, and taste isn't binary. I mean... In t- taste is not in two halves. Taste is a, <laughs> taste is a, sc- a scale, a, a, you know, a, it's... It's not binary. That's saying is shit. Sorry. Right. So Terry now declares war on the Norwegian people. Please continue. That's it. That's all I've got. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Okay, fine. All right. Sorry, Martha. Uh, Terry is having absolutely none of your colloquialism. Uh, Boyd, Boyd, did, did you like Did you like the cleft arse analogy or not? Um, no, I, I think Terry's right. Yeah, it's, it doesn't It doesn't quite work, but, but nice try. I'll be honest, anyone who listens to this podcast might be mistaken for thinking taste is somewhat binary, but maybe that's uh, more of a critique of us. Yeah, whose fault is that? Or me! Yeah, exactly. Just because our tastes on this podcast are binary, i.e. me and Boyd are right and you're wrong, doesn't mean that actually tastes are generally. Sure. Okay. Great. But, but, but... I can see how she may have reached that conclusion Mm. if she is a regular listener of the Pilot TV podcast. Well, uh, backends aside, we should move on to what we've been watching this week. And I would like to start by saying one thing, and it is this. As Jane Austen famously once wrote, it is a truth universally acknowledged that season one of Friday Night Lights is a perfect season of television and season two is among the worst. However, I would like to dispute this fact. Now, I have watched now the whole of season one. I just finished, just finished the whole of season two, finished it last night, obviously having watched these before. And a tweet came to mind when I finished it by Lil Sebastian, who tweeted me a while back to raise this very point, which is that everyone believes Friday Night Lights Season 1 is perfect and Season 2 is an abomination. And neither of which is strictly speaking true. Like Friday Night Lights Season 1 is good, but it has some slightly wobbly bits to it. And I think the biggest principal problem there is Jason Street. Now, this obviously will mean more to Boyd because he's watched the show, but Jason Street, I always feel watching this that they don't know what to do with that character. They can't quite find a storyline that he fits into. And that was quite a strong feeling for me through season one but season two apart from this murder plot actually has some good stuff in it all the rigging stuff is really good i quite like that yes there is an awful mexico road trip yes lila garrity finds god and that's unfortunate as well um but you know there's lots of dealing with the new baby coach and tammy stuff there's a lot of great character development in this and uh, so i don't think season two is is the complete car crash that maybe everyone thinks it is that said it is a weird one i think i've mentioned this before so season two was renewed for 19 episodes they got to 15 and had to stop because of the writer's strike but it doesn't really have a finale it just stops with episode 15 and they just don't continue it it just ends it's a really bizarre finale it's really downbeat kind of low-key and doesn't really resolve a great deal of things and I th- the show nearly got cancelled after season two it did get renewed after that i think the the network did a kind of co-exhibition deal for the remaining three seasons and but season three picks up with a press conference where coach Taylor addresses press questions essentially filling in the storyline of what would have happened at the end of season two and it's absolute genius and you see like moments of footage of stuff which you can only assume would have been 
the season two finale. So actually, I think that's quite a clever way of, of dealing with it. But did you know how, how Friday Night Lights is shot? How, you know, the, the clever way that they made mm. that particular show? Because, yeah, because so they don't, they didn't do it as like, you know, multiple takes of the same setup. They had three cameras. They did everything yeah. in single takes. They didn't really do rehearsals. They didn't really do blocking. They were very kind of free and easy with the dialogue. So just be in character, say what you like. Not improvisational, not like I am level stuff. But it was very much actor oriented. So the cameraman would follow the actors around instead of prescribing the blocking of where the actors went. And that's what gives it that really organic naturalistic feel almost sort of pseudo documentary feel it's it's quite yeah. glorious to watch it's an interesting I, 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 this is going to sound wanky but i am always <coughs> i'm fascinated by where when directors take the approach to rehearsing and not rehearsing and all that and doing it i went mm. to the screening of andrew haig's new um thing the north water which is going to be on bbc2 i think sadly i think terry's going to miss out on reviewing it. she's going to fucking love it it's so ter- it's such a terry show <laughs> it's like grim and toxic wailing men with massive beards being horrendously violent and nasty and horrible to each other um but he talked about so the q a i went live q a and everything at the bfi last week andrew hay talked about he does he never rehearses at all so really? um, yeah he just gets so he gets these like amazing actors you know they've got the script to just go for it and then and see what happens and it's much more natural and i kind of i think that makes sense to me but then you get other actors go bang on about oh we had like 10 weeks of rehearsals it was so brilliant we got to rehearse for weeks and weeks and weeks but the, the, the theatrical <laughs> ones they love it they go on about it constantly but i tend to think that the no rehearsal thing works and it certainly did in friday night lights that the the the, the uh, what made friday, one of the many things that made friday night lights seem so special for, especially for a network i always say that makes this a network show the, what, yeah. the reason why they yeah. had to do all those episodes because it was on friday night on, on nbc and mm. um was the, the was the authentic quality of the whole of the of the way it was done it felt like so real the acting was naturalistic the direction was naturalistic. it just felt like kind of effortlessly real which you just don't get on you know network t- american dramas on many things but that kind of level of authenticity is really unusual. Yeah, which is, I think, why it very nearly kind of fell off a cliff and didn't go, because it never really got high ratings, like even no, during the no, first season. Never. Like, it was critically acclaimed, but the rate, like much yeah. like The Wire, like nobody yeah. watched it, but the critics thought it was the best thing ever. Mm. Um, so it's amazing. It's amazing we got, it we survived as long as it did. It is, it is. But it's funny that people talk about the like the the short second season, which is 15 episodes, but once they the network sorted out the deal, like the seasons three, four, and five are all like 12 episodes or 13 episodes. Like they're even shorter still, uh, but they do have proper conclusions. So yeah, so I have been watching more Friday Night Lights. I will also say that the first three episodes of season two of C oh. are available on the Apple portal. Here we go. Uh, let me just tell you, I had a lovely, lovely weekend the other <laughs> weekend watching those. It's in and I can't talk about it on any level. Uh, but the smile on my face should speak volumes. Um, and also, I, the only bit of the Olympics I watched was the uh, the Russian athlete with the Witcher medallion who returned oh, yeah. back to Russia to a rousing chorus of toss a coin to your Witcher uh, by whatever national orchestra greeted her home. And I thought that was glorious. I will point out to all of the websites who said that she was wearing the White Wolf's medallion. Clearly, it was a medallion of the cat school, and that's a really rookie error to make. So, so many of your fans on Twitter, so many diehards, um, were, were tweeting me and you and and everything about this Russian woman and her Witcher thing. They're all saying, "Oh, this is a way to get James to watch the Olympics." I mean, fucking hell, yeah, that's definitely why she did it. <laughs> Bring me the Witcher, and I'll watch anything you like. Oh dear. So, what have you been watching, Boydie? Um, well, the Olympics is finished now, as you know. 
James. I do know. Um, we, I'm really going to miss it. So I have been watching it day in, day out, about 18 hours a day. It's been brilliant. The, the best moment of all, I just wanted to mention quickly, which was an amazing TV drama moment that you could not have scripted, as they say, as the cliche goes, but it's so true. And it will one, term, one day be turned into a TV drama, was the men's high jump when um, uh, Mutaz Esabashim of Qatar and Gianmarco Tamberi of Italy shared, decided to share live in front of 8 billion people around the world, the gold medal. So they'd had exactly the same results on the high jump. They'd each incrementally, you know, you you, you you go for a different height each time. They both reached the same height. They both failed the next height. And they what they should, the rules are, you should, and then supposed to do a jump off where you then compete in a, the two of you. But they're, they're friends in real life. They hang out together in real life. And there was this moment where they'd finished and, and they one of them, the Italian guy said to the, the judge, can we just both have the gold? Can we just both? And he went, yeah, all right, like that. And they did. <laughs> and they hugged each other and it was crying and it was so brilliantly emotional and wonderful moment. It, ha- it was incredible. So that was the... I mean, there was so many things happening in the Olympics that were brilliant, but that was the best thing that happened. Let's talk logistics. Do they get a medal each? Do they yeah, have like a, a timeshare arrangement? Oh, they do yeah. get one each. They got okay, a medal each, and they shared the podium, and they played both national anthems because they played the national anthem, and it was a fucking joy, absolute joy to behold. It's it's on. Find it on. It'll be on the internet and all that on YouTube because it's so incredible the whole thing. I look forward to the BBC miniseries. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. Um, then I've finished Baptiste. I know Terry's doing it week by week live, which is very. Um, but I could not resist finishing the whole thing i think it was after last week's i was like i have to know i just had to find out what's happening and i did i watched the whole thing and I, what i think what is really interesting is i think it's episode five where a lot of um events come tumbling out and a lot of explanations come tumbling out of who is who and what's happening and etc what i love about the 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 writing of baptiste is that like they have quite long dialogue scenes to explain things which aren't you know which aren't just um narrative explanations um, their actual explanation of emotionally why people do things to each other, bad things to each other. And there's one scene that goes on for about like five, seemingly five, ten minutes, just a kind of long dialogue scene in episode five that is amazing. And and it, I think you know the equivalent of other shows like this, like crime dramas, would just you just wouldn't see it, you just wouldn't have have it. But um, the the way they write the Williams brothers write that show, I think is really interesting. Like they confront the big moments and they deal with thorny, difficult topics and incorporating into an incredibly compelling crime narrative. So yeah, I think they're I think they're this I think they're working at their very best in the show. And I loved and even though there are bits of it that test they absolutely test credulity, um, but it just about they just about um make it work. So I've loved um Baptiste. That's been pretty much oh and I watched I accidentally watched an episode of Game of Thrones the other night, right? <laughs> Season one, is, episode is it rewatch? <laughs> it's on it's no, I'm not starting a rewatch. But they show it on Sky Atlantic all the time and I was just I just flicked over and it was, um, I was reminded for the first time in many years of the extraordinary scene in season one, episode seven, when Baelish, played by Aidan Gillen, gets two women in the brothel to uh, have sex with each other. The sex he, position. The, the sex position scene as it's become, and it is unbelievably extraordinary and a reminder of just how tawdry yeah. the early years of Game of Thrones yeah. was when they really wrapped up the gratuitous nudity, particularly of women. It was absolutely not an equal opportunities nudity situation. And that scene is almost excruciating to watch. It's so, it's so tawdry. 
imagery and exploitative, it's hilarious. And the fact that they kind of, by the time the lot, when it became a massive global phenomenon, the, the last thing, there was barely any sex nudity at all. But in that, in those early years, it was fucking unbelievable what they were doing. It was. And, that and you're scene, right, it wasn't, it wasn't equal opportunities. You do get to see Alfie Allen's Greyjoy at one point, but other than that, yeah. it's definitely oh, not and then, an equal opportunities thing. Yeah, every now and then, mm. but, the, but women with their, with their um, uh, breasts out. And that scene of, of, of <laughs> it's unbelievable. I mean, and by the way, Aidan Gillen, I mean, love him. He is terrible. I think he's genuinely <laughs> terrible in that scene. It's like, he's, bit, he's like, oh, I've got to actually read this stuff. It's like, you know, those performances where they're like, oh my God, I've really got to do this scene. I don't think he enjoyed it. I, I felt like, I could felt a sense of kind of like, what the fuck are we doing in this scene? Well, it's just the thing is, is that they've got him essentially mansplaining loads of sort of like political exposition yeah. to these two prostitutes for no particular yeah. reason. So we, the audience, have a vague idea what's going on. Yeah, while um, they have, and then they have sex a, with each other. Yeah. yeah, and then there's a, and then, an interlude about some asshole direction, which comes in at one point. You're like, oh, I mean, I want to make sure we're all still paying attention. I wasn't even going to mention that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. Segwaying seamlessly from that into what Terry's been watching. Um, asshole. Right. So um, uh, I want to talk about three things this week. So I'm continuing to watch Law and Order Organized Crime. So Friday night. Well, actually, I don't watch it on Friday night. Um, I watch it over the weekend and I. I'm doing SVU and then organised crime. They're on back to back on Sky Witness. The amazing thing is, and I know you don't agree, James, because you made it clear when we reviewed Law and Order, organised crime, <laughs> is that they look, they're playing back to back and they cross over. So there are narrative plot points. Then they're, they're never repeated in the episodes, but you'll pick up with Liv in um, uh, organised crime. Your stapler will appear in SVU or his name will be mentioned. But because Law and Order organized crime has this kind of more modern take it literally it really dates us for you which is still being shot and filmed like it is today but it's still got all those old-fashioned kind of mannerisms and characteristics and visuals and all of that it's really weird because suddenly you feel like organized crime is like zeitgeist you're like Woo, look at the like flashy things and the busy music like it's it's spinning me out a bit i've got nothing else to say apart from that and the fact that Law and Order Organised Crime are going for some, I'm going to say it, ambitious cinematography. There's a shot of Stabler from behind this week framed against the Coney Island Wonder Wheel, shot from from below, this heroic shot that you would never see in Law and Order, which is like over the SVU, which is over the shoulder, like, you know, just kind of hold that shot as people walk around the room for seven minutes. There's been some Catholicism and Catholic... Alastigmata kind of risk oh, going your on. Favorite. I do know how much you love stigmata. There is they are pushing a bit of Catholicism bit and stigmata. Of, of him as you know, as him as a a uh, a man in this suffering. Like I, I'm, I'm obsessed with it. So I'm still enjoying that. I'm wondering that the noticeable difference in production value between the two is absolutely mm. there to be seen. So I wonder whether the SVU people are like, hold on, why didn't we get this fucking budget yeah. and this lavish cinematography and design and all that? They must be feeling like furious Honestly. about it. Honestly. But I think people would revolt. Like, do you not feel that, as you've talked about with SVU, that there's this sort of comfort food thing. I'm not sure that a big stylistic change on that would go down well with the it viewership. It wouldn't, but by the same token... They are running on television back to back mm. and they're interwoven. So the d- difference is massive. And I understand why you wouldn't want to maybe have a new Law and Order kind of look old fashioned, but it hasn't stopped them before. It's, <laughs> but it's even their squad room is ridiculous. I mean, 
And it's different the way it's set up, like Stabler is the star, but there's the, the crew they've brought together in much more actually of a CSI kind of way or actually a mm. um, criminal minds. That's what it reminds me of. You've got the Penelope Garcia yeah. computer girl. Like, in fact, yeah, there's lots going on with this guy. It's like, we should probably do a deep dive at some point. Um, oh, please, let Two other things. <laughs> so I do a thing every Sunday morning where – um, on weekends, me and my boyfriend alternate who gets up with the baby. When I get up with him, I have, you know, half six on a Sunday. I usually watch Law and Order and Organised Crime, but I also, like, decide to choose one random thing that I would never normally watch because either it, it doesn't look quite good enough. Well, usually it just doesn't look quite good enough. And I choose one random thing, either a TV show or a film, and it's I call it, like, it's like dead time, so it doesn't matter if it's shit. Cause, you know, normally you think I've got an evening and if I watch some shit, that's my entire evening ruin. This is kind of dead time because it's time I'd normally be in bed. Um, so this week I watched something on Netflix called Why Did You Kill Me? Have you heard of this? Yeah, I heard of it, yeah. So this is has become a bit of a word of mouth hit. It was just served to me by Netflix as a recommendation. And it's a crime documentary obviously and the why did you kill me the reason it's phrased but like that is because there was a young girl called crystal theobald in america who was murdered by they thought a gang member she wasn't associated with gangs wrong time wrong place kind of thing or mistaken identity but basically her mother belinda was so unhappy with how the police investigation was going she got her daughter's cousin because this was back in the day, to set up a fake MySpace account using her daughter's picture. And then she got her daughter, who they called Angel, to befriend all of the suspects from the gang who murdered her to try and basically entrap them or solve the case herself. And at one point she lost her shit with them and asked one of them, why did you kill me? And then revealed that it was her. This sounds bonkers, and it really, really is, because you've just got this, the, the murder, you know, really tragic murder of this young girl, mum of two, and her mum sets up this fake, fake MySpace with her cousin. They lure in these gang members. They try and learn enough information. The police continue being involved. It's like this, this whole sprawling epic thing that went on for like 10 to 15 years, trying to bring her daughter's murderers to mystery one of them escaped mexico at one point um, t- a couple of them kind of turned against the gang and testified the sons were involved in some criminal stuff she used to be a drug dealer like it is the most bonkers one of these i've pretty much ever seen but it's really well done so the thing you can never quite tell with these documentaries is is it cheapest chips kind of you know really done on a budget you just kind of chuck all the salacious bits at the screen of hope for the best and it's hard to tell which of these is actually quality and worth investing your time in let me tell you that this one is quality and worth investing your time in it's completely bonkers it's completely out there and i can Highly recommend it. It's like 90 minutes, I think, which we all know is the perfect length. Um, and it is on Netflix. Fill your boots. Right. The last the last thing I want mm. to talk about. You would hate it, James, but you'd really like it. So take, take from gonna, that yeah, one. Yeah, I'm going to watch it for sure. Now, there's something else <laughs> I want to talk about. And 
um, what we're going to do now, normally, at this point, I would say no spoilers, but the stuff I want to talk about has to involve spoilers. So what I'm going to say is, and we will put this in the episode description, won't we, James Dyer? When you say we. You are going to put it in the episode description, aren't you, James Dyer? Um, so I want to talk about Handmaid's Tale season four, which is what's obviously currently airing in the UK. Last night was season four, episode eight, called Testimony. If you have not seen season four, episode eight of The Handmaid's Tale, please skip forward. We will put the time codes in the description. But this episode was called Testimony. And look, season four has not been all of the lols. Um, you June shocked has, me. <laughs> yeah, it hasn't been all of those. June has made it across the border to Canada. That's some relief. But now what we're dealing with is the kind of the effects of it, the effects of trauma, all of those things, which is an entirely new world of pain, really, um, while still going back to Gilead, which still exists. Um, now, the Waterfords are on trial. And so this episode is called Testimony. And uh, Mr. Waterford is basically at a confirmation of charges hearing. He hasn't even kind of been formally charged yet. Serena is there with him. She's now pregnant. And basically June is able to go and give her testimony. And I know we talk about Elizabeth Moss being an amazing actor. And she can do extraordinary things. But my God, like every time I see her in this, I think she's kind of hit a new level. And she's just like keeps going and going. This episode deals with that testimony And it also deals throughout the episode with rage. And she's in this survivors group that had previously kind of, you know, been talking about healing and recovery and letting go of anger and all of this. And when June turned up, she's kind of tipped it into being a place where the women can talk openly about revenge and about anger and and kind of disrupt that, that more palatable language that exists, especially around sexual violence. It's so brilliantly done. It's funny because I was on Twitter last night and some people were reacting really strongly to to June being like they were saying she was a psycho. She's, you know, turned into um, a really unlikable calendar. Turned into a really unlikable calendar. (laughs) Woodwatch. Really unlikable. 100% Woodwatch. And then she turns into a calendar. a character, and I find it really fascinating, right? Because telly has tradition. I'm going to try not to make this the world's longest, longest monologue, but TV traditionally, when it comes to women who are victims of sexual violence, you have two kinds of women depicted, generally speaking. One of which is kind of women who've got to this place of virtuous recovery where they are at peace, they hold no rage, they're kind of the good victims. Then you have the women who've been so traumatized that they become psychopaths, that they are all about rage and, you know, chop somebody's cock off. And those are the two, if we're talking about binary, they are the two types of women that exist in television and film, women who've been sexually brutalised. Handmaid's Tale in this episode does something so fascinating because it, it, it looks at the theory that actually maybe recovery isn't about forgiveness or finding peace. Maybe it's okay to carry rage obviously how that rage iterates itself is another conversation but I don't think I was trying to think if I'd ever seen this proposition put onto telly which is you can one way of of getting over it if that's what we want to call it maybe is keeping your rage who says you have to get over it in a certain way that involves peace and love and fucking namaste like it's so like 
It it feels so radical and it doesn't sound radical, but it, honestly, I cannot cannot think of any other show that's put that out there. And the way people are reacting, I think, is really fascinating because it scares them because you see an angry woman who talks, you know, with great passion about what's been done to her and how she feels about those people. And people go, oh, psycho bitch, psycho bitch. See what happens to those women? This completely challenges it. And the other important thing is episode is the moment of testimony. So she gives a speech about exactly what was done to her over her time in Gilead. And the filmmaking choices made in this scene are incredible. So the Waterfords are both in court watching. June's husband turns up because he wants to hear what happened to her because he's trying to understand what she's been through. But the cat, and it's amazing because you were waiting. The camera is is really close up and tight. Um, tightly framed on her face and she speaks and the camera doesn't move away from her in the entire speech which goes to several minutes and I was waiting for the moment when they pan to the Waterford so you can see him looking vaguely ashamed of what he'd done or panning to a husband who's full of anguish they don't move off her the entire speech and it's uncomfortable and it's awkward but it was so arresting and again just that felt radical and it was incredibly incredibly powerful and they held with her the entire time and then went to people there's none of your traditional reaction shots of imagine being the husband whose wife was subjected to that you know he must be in so much pain it keeps the focus on her experience and her point of view and I just thought it was brilliant and I sat at the end of the episode last night and I couldn't talk about it on Twitter because of spoilers and I had so much to say about it and I thought I'd had to come here and say it this morning do you know the key fact about the episode? It's directed by Elizabeth Moss. Oh yeah, but she's directed a few weeks so because she did. Um, oh yeah, sure. She did last week's, yeah. and but yes, that is a very good point, Boyding. Very good point because the the filmmaking choices made in this episode, the direction, it's a very good point. The choices of direction are so deliberate, and yeah, I just like I continue to be blown away, and I know people talk about how difficult it is to watch and torture porn and all of that, and that is definitely still in there but it's having such challenging conversations with its audience about sexual violence about living with sexual violence about rage about forgiveness about what is justice i just think it's it's doing more work than pretty much any other type of art at the moment in this space and i just really hope people are watching it i really hope people are getting something out of it and really thinking about these things and I just like was so I was just left in awe last night and I think it's doing we will look back on this show definitely but this particular run of episodes when it comes to PTSD and when it comes to getting over trauma and recovery and all whatever we want to call it I think this we will look back on this in years to come as such significant seismic television in the way it challenged conversations through culture and I just think it's fucking stupendous and I want to lock Elizabeth Moss in a room and, and make her talk to me about all of it until one of us has to leave that presumably is set up for the next season so <laughs> yeah, that would be a great spoiler special yeah oh my god oh my god well that is what Terry has been watching I'm in no position to criticise anyone for extended monologues on TV shows so let's go straight into this I week's question <laughs> 
<laughs> hey, I sympathise. My mine was seventeen minutes. You didn't even come close to that. Mine was, and and let's just be frank. Mine's about sexual trauma and being brutalised. James yeah. is about fucking Star Trek or fucking what do you call it? It was Game of Sorry, Thrones. Game Terry. of Thrones. Unbelievable. There's no spaceships in Game of Thrones. Anyway, so listen to question. Now, I once again this week mooted the excellent theme tune question that you guys passed on last week, only to be roundly shut down once again. Looks like they're never going to see the light of day. Uh, instead, we went with a Terry's choice this week. Terry, do you want to tell us about the question that you chose this week? Yes. Yeah, so basically, I got lots of questions because I put a little shout out on Twitter the other week when James was scrabbling around and coming up with something shite. So, it, it was and excellent. I had a long list. And this one is from Annika Rowe. You said, following your discussion about Pacey last week, I was, can't even remember why now, talking about Pacey Witter being the, the ruiner of all middle-aged women as we held him up <laughs> as the uh, untouchable yardstick of how a young man should behave. Following your discussion about Pacey last week and the question about bad dates recently, which TV character would be your ideal partner? Pacey Witter forever, she says, or failing that Aiden from Sex and the City. She then adds genuinely would love to hear James Dyer's response to this, actually. So maybe we should start with James Dyer's response. I mean, must we? Yes. <laughs> can I just say Pacey and move on? Would that, no, would that work? Go on. <laughs> we can all say Pacey and we move on. We can all say Pacey. It's all Pacey Witter. Um, oh, God. Who who would I pick? Uh, like you haven't thought about this. Come on. Like. What's the, well, no, no. Like, like, I take these things seriously, right? So, so what's the wording of the actual question? Ideal date or no, ideal partner, partner. From, of a TV character? Uh, which TV character would be your ideal partner? Hmm. Okay, well, it's almost like I almost want to go like show by show, but I'm not going to do that. Um, if no, I were to pick, do. if I were to pick, yeah, that's it. The next, the next half an hour is now locked down. If I were to pick a Game of Thrones character, it would be Egret the Wildling. That would be that would be my Game of Thrones choice. Uh, if I were to pick a West Wing character, it would be Amy Gardner. Really? Yes, definitely, uh, definitely well, Amy Gardner. I think you know. I think that's who James believes it would be. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. I was going to say CJ Craig, who. Who, who's one of mine but yeah I do love CJ I do love CJ but Amy I never understood the Donna stands who wanted Josh to end up with Donna that never made any oh, sense yeah, to me I was, no. like, I was, I was all no. about Amy uh, I'm I'm quite partial to Robin Ellicott in Strike uh, but honestly there is only one answer to this question and it is Sloan Sabbath from the newsroom who is super hot um, a stone cold genius and a great big fucking nerd the perfect trifecta of attributes yeah yeah I can see that also yeah. very funny yeah I'm not going to say key, there yeah. is a gap between what James claims to look for and what James looks for, but there's a gap between what James hang looks for. Hang on, hang on. This is this is fundamentally untrue. I absolutely go for completely unattainable women, and I don't know what you're I, talking about. Are oh, you yeah, saying that the real answer is one of the one of those women in that scene with Peter Baelish in uh, a game of Thrones? Oh my god, no! <laughs> oh my god, no! No, 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 no. Sloane Sabbath is a great character, although often tarred with the same brush that people use when they uh, when they accuse Aaron Sorkin of not being able to write female characters. Uh, that was absolutely. Bullshit. We've, we've established that because my uh, CJ Craig is, is one of my answers because she's absolutely phenomenal and one yeah. of the greatest human beings in the history of television. Yeah, and um, you know, so yeah, that's absolute bullshit. My, my other choice is Elaine from Seinfeld, who is the greatest. You don't shock me. Um, yeah. Oh my god, I know, dream team. I mean, I know she's not real, yeah. but you know. <laughs> In my yeah, head, I know exactly. I want you well, that's to get together. Isn't that the point of the question? I know, I know <laughs> I want you to get together. <laughs> I mean, I, I, yeah, 
from the very first moment she uh, she set foot and of course I've met Julie Louis Dreyfus well, I interviewed her once in some really gratuitous um, thing for Heat and uh, she was so fucking adorable and nice and I've got a picture with her and but yeah but it's Elaine it's, mm. it, Elaine is just the dream it's just the dream person right um, go on then Terry okay, let's hear so it so I've got three what, what sort of reformed offender <laughs> well, you know <laughs> So I've got three sublists. So, of course you do. Um, the first list is would be good for me, and I'd like to go out with them. Second list is might be bad for me, but I'd still like to go out with them. And the third list is would really fucking irritate me, but I'd still like to go out for the, with them. You've given this a lot of thought. So would be good for me. Casey Witter, Dawson's Creek. Although caveat. Only would be good for me if I was the Joey in this scenario. Because if I was the Audrey or one of the other women he went out with but wasn't really into because he was really into Joey, he didn't treat them very well. And we all Mm. think we're going to be the Joey. We all think we're going to be the one. But actually, we're never the Joey. So I might have to take him off the list as it happens. But anyway. We're never the Joey, the title of your next memoir. Never the Joey. Right. (laughs) Number two, Ryan Atwood from the OC. As she's bad, but bad boy, but good heart. Mm. You know, kid from the wrong side of the tracks. Emotionally honest, if a little bit close. You'd spend all your life trying to get him to <laughs> let his guard down, and he wouldn't. And then he'd dump you because you're not Marissa either. I'm not the Joey, and I'm not the Marissa. Sandy Cohen, number three. I mean, that's fair. Every day, it's, <laughs> the man is a god. And then, if you're dating Ryan and Sandy, I think we I need to yeah. talk. <laughs> that would be fun. Number- Are you throwing Seth in there as well? No, no, bless him. <laughs> and then number four, Josiah Bartlett, the West Wing. You're going to be first lady. I'm going to be first, first Oh, my God, that's a horrifying <laughs> idea. Isn't it? What an lady, idea. The first fucking lady, I think you'll find. Right, so <laughs> the second list might be bad for me, but I'd still like to go out with them. Number one, Tony Soprano. <laughs> I mean, he might be, but have, with that ambiguous ending, and who knows? I mean, it could be fine. He's person. Like, he's trying to find, yeah. he, but, you know, murder and all that. Number two, Baptiste. Mm. We talked about this recently. Baptiste oh, yeah, Vol yeah. would have been just on the good for me list, but now he's gone it's, dark It's Baptiste. scraggly beard Baptiste, yeah, isn't it? Just to be clear. Yeah, 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 yeah. Number three, yeah. um, the doctor. Which one? The tenth, doc- the tenth doctor. Ah. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Because he yeah. had moments of darkness as well, and also, I'm not Rose. Never the Rose. Never the Joey. Never the Marissa. Um, mm. Elliot Finch, Gangs of London. Nelly from Save Me Too, specifically from Save Me Too, not Save Me. Elliot Stapler yeah. from SVU. That, <laughs> one's that one. one. Goes. And goes. then my final list is would irritate the fuck out of me, but I'd still like to go out with them. Josh Lyman from the West Wing. <laughs> he really would. Yeah. You'd kill yeah. him. You'd actually murder him within about five minutes. I know, but he but he's got a certain charm, hasn't he? And he's funny and he's clever. I can I always I'm a sucker for funny. The amount and clever. of splaining. The amount of splaining. I know. But that's why I had to bring <laughs> yeah. his own list. He had to have his own subsection. That's James amazing. is a bit like Josh Lyman without the charm, isn't he? So Thank you. Had the kind, Thank some you, kind boys. of experience. That's, that's <laughs> lovely. Yeah. So why is Toby not on your list? That's what I want to know. You see... Oh, Toby, do me a favour. Just the, the pompousness and arrogance. Yeah, no, pompousness? No. Uh, pom- pompiety? Oh, my God. Pompiety? Totally. Is that a word? Look, he's, so, he's, pom- he's, he's a little bit, you know, sanctimonious. Arrogance. The arrogance and the pompous oh. nature. I can put up with, with much, but that would, that would drive me mad. And I've never... Is any character ever so 
been consumed by their own rightness. Yes, he is the most yeah. self-righteous character in yes. television, I think. But, uh, yeah. but he's glorious. Yeah. But you wouldn't want to go out with him, no, would you? Yeah. You want to go, yeah, exactly. Oh, my God, couldn't best be yeah, with him for enough. more than about fair 10 enough. minutes a day. Just maybe want to be friends with him. <sighs> yeah. Well, I hope that has been enlightening. I've certainly enjoyed Terry's the most. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, if you have a question that you would like us to address on this podcast, because frankly, we have run out of good ones. Apologies to anyone who sent in a not good one or one that didn't pass Boyd and Terry's incredibly strict filters of quality. Uh, then do send them over to us at Pilot TV Pod by DM on Twitter. Shall we move on to what little news there is? Uh, we're recording on Monday morning, so that actually gives us a little bit of extra news to scoop up in the net, although there still hasn't been much. There have been some renewals. Have you seen there have been a few renewals? Bad Batch has been renewed for season two. Uh, Mighty Ducks, Terry, has been renewed Woo! for season two. Physical, for reasons, has been renewed mm. for season two. Yes. Oh, is it? Uh, yes. Bloody and anyone thinking that they were going to get away from South Park anytime soon has unfortunately seen that dream dashed because South Park, I mean... This kind of blew my mind. So Trey Parker and Matt Stone have signed a $900 million deal with Paramount Plus to wow. extend South Park for another 150 years or something like that. <laughs> but not only are they doing it for another it's like six or eight seasons they're doing, but they're also doing 14, one for 14 South Park movies as part of this deal. So 14 movies and another whatever many series of South Park for $900 million. Are people still watching South Park? I, I did not know this was a thing. Can't be, right? Yeah, I mean, you'd be, these things just go on, yeah. I mean, it's, it is incredible, but... Wow, $900 million. $900 million. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Terry, for that contribution. <laughs> yeah. can, we just, can we just start by saying, I cannot believe this is the news you started with. Okay, don't, sure, don't you carry have on. Some what? kind of Lord of the Ring-ing to be doing. Yeah, I would thought that as well. I, yeah. Do you that know what? It, just, it seems so long ago. I'd forgotten it was actually mm. this week, uh, which was about mm, the Empire podcast this week, last week. Yeah. Uh, yes, they did release the first picture of the Lord of the Rings TV series, as well as a date, which is September 2022, for when that will arrive on Amazon. And it was a humanoid figure standing in front of a fantasy city so there you go i do not know what city it is i do not know what person it is but are you excited hooray. i'm excited for the series sure but i'm not excited to the level that i'm excited about something like the last of us for example uh, or even to a certain extent the wheel of time i think because it's not like this is a continuation this is taking place you know in the whatever it is third age something age second age an, a different age like long 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 before the classic lord of the Rings story so i'm, I'm very interested to see it i'm, I'm i think it will be certainly right up my alley but it's yeah it's not one that i'm counting down the days to unlike the other shows that i mentioned like for example c which comes to us later this month yeah there was a uh stranger things trailer mm. did you see the stranger things trailer no, new I haircuts boyd new haircuts exactly um lots of locations um there's stuff in russia and uh sean levy the showrunner said they're filming filming in georgia lithuania new mexico he said it's sprawling this season four, that was the word he used. And um, I think you forget, I love Stranger Things. I'm a huge fan of it. So I am, I'm, you know, I'm up for, I'm very excited about season four. There's massive gap between the seasons. But, but that's the thing, like, aren't the kids now all in their, like, mid-40s? So yeah. it's going to be slightly you odd. You think. And yet, from the trailer, they don't look, they've aged that much. Think so, you know, they're, they're, it's, yeah, I mean, it's fine. It's not like, it's not like I'm um, old or anything, like, you know, the Mike Shannon film. Where you've well, skipped forward a something. generation. Yeah. It's just like. Yeah, they look, they still look. You know, they have got new haircuts, but they still look young enough 
for the premise of the show to work, I think. Do we know how long it's supposed to have elapsed? No. No. We don't. Okay. I don't Several years, but one can only assume. Exactly. No, I'm, I'm, you know, I like Strange Things. I'm, I'm happy to see it. I was not, I'm not excited about that as I was about the on-set photos from The Last of Us, which did uh, go online this week. Uh, nothing really to report other than this, this kind of dystopian hellscape, but it does look very in keeping with the theme. We also never mentioned, I don't think, on this podcast that uh, Anna Torv joined uh, The Last of Us. She'll be playing Tess, who's the smuggler who hangs out with Joel kind of at the beginning of the uh, game slash show. Um, so that's, uh, that's cool. I love Anna Torv. She's great, obviously, uh, from Mindhunter and Fringe for those of you who are Fringe fans. What else has been happening this week? Did you hear about the Starfleet Academy TV series, which is apparently noodling around in uh, in Alex Kurtzman's brain? So they're looking at developing a slightly younger skewing Starfleet Academy TV series. Let's be honest, Terry, it's going to be the OC in space. That's what it's going to be. <laughs> I mean, so half of that I think you'd enjoy sounds it. good. Yeah, the OC in space, <laughs> Starfleet Academy. I mean, this this the concept of doing something, whether it be film or whatever it is, Starfleet Academy has been circling since time immemorial. Um, so it looks like they're finally going ahead of it with it, since they seem to be actively greenlighting pretty much any pitch connected to Star Trek at the moment. But uh, I don't know, of course I'll watch it. It's not animated, so I will definitely watch it. There was um, hmm. Kate Winslet kind of talking about there maybe not being a um, Mayor of Easttown season two. So she was on uh, the Awardist podcast and basically was saying she'd have to work out if she could handle the emotional weight of returning to mayor. So she said, at the end of shooting, we were like, holy hell. she say holy hell? Holy hell, we could never do that again. So if HBO bring up the idea of season two, we'll just all got to say, no, absolutely not. There's just absolutely no way we could ever possibly do it. But then she said, but there was talk of, well, could we... Could there be when the show was getting such great responses? Creatively, Brad has shared some very cool ideas. We'll see what happens. But I also have to figure out, can I do it? Could I go through it again? It did cost me a lot emotionally to be here. And I just have to figure out if I can summon all that up again. I mean, I love Kate Wins and everything, but fucking hell, of course they'll be in the fucking series. <laughs> Put it in your diary now. Um, I'm saying full 2023 Season two, definitely. Because it, it, be obviously we've talked a lot about, you know, how amazing she is at, at that character. Um, but I, I, don't, I didn't kind of imagine it was so emotionally draining. Do you know yeah, what I mean? No, so, same, not, right. not a lot of same. big traumatic scenes or no. quite internal. Half the scenes were, were, but yeah, she, half the scenes were eating a hot dog in the car. I mean, it's not yeah, like... But it's a bit, <laughs> I, mean, I suppose no, it depends amazing, but, what her process is, isn't it? Because that is a character that carries a lot of grief and emotional baggage around with her at all times. Yeah, it depends how true. much she yeah, internalised that aspect of the character. Because that, I guess, could be quite yeah. uh, quite yeah. draining. But yeah, she I, absolutely, I would like she absolutely embodied yeah. every. Yeah. She, she did embody yeah. it. Yeah, to be fair. Also, like no one needs. Like she's probably like God. No, there's only so much cheese whiz a person can realistically <laughs> eat. I don't really want to yeah. get back to that again. But yes, I would like to see more of that. You see, Cobra Kai is now December. We've got a month, if not an actual date, for Cobra Kai season four, and the return of the All Valley Karate Tournament, which is going to be the centerpiece of the next season. That teaser, so. I'm sorry, that teaser was hammy and like brilliant. <laughs> I was yeah. like there for Wasn't it. it. Yeah, it's so yeah. ridiculous. Did you see? Did you? Did you see the Ofcom in their Ofcom report about TV? Uh, Ofcom does a kind of annual report about um, you know generally issues in television. And, and they had their own list of Netflix's biggest hits, basically based on their own research. Which I wonder. I, I assume Netflix must be fairly pissed off about. But Cobra Kai. I'm, I'm trying to find the list now. I can't find it, obviously. But Cobra Kai was in the top ten, intriguingly. 
um, and Bridgerton, etc. But The Crown wasn't. The Crown was mm. noticeably absent, I thought, from the top 10 shows watched in Britain, according to um, Ofcom, this Ofcom film. Oh, what was number one? That. Yeah. That is a good question. Um, I think it was Bridgerton off the top of my head, I think, but I'm going to have to try and have a check. Carry on. <laughs> All right, fine. Uh, what else have I got? Miss Marvel looks like it's been pushed back to 2022. That's no shock there. There was news that there's a Waterworld TV series in the works, which has kind of blown my mind. Uh -oh. Dan Trachtenberg, oh my God, who did that 10 is Cloverfield Lane, ridiculous. is apparently resurrecting Kevin Costner's Waterworld Don't as do a TV it. series. I mean, yeah. I like Waterworld. I'm not going to say Waterworld is a good film. I am going to say, however, that I enjoy it. So there's a part of me that quite likes the idea of seeing a Waterworld TV series sort of set in that, you know, very wet world. There's a whole there's a whole cult of Water Waterworld, isn't there? Of like, it's actually a really good kind of cult, which I have to say I do not agree with. Yeah, I mean, it's not good. I like it. I, I'm completely comfortable with the fact that it's terrible, but I like it. Um, yeah, I yeah. just think I just think it's kind of you know it's a, it's a cool concept. What else have we got? Any other news? Any other news? You know, Sky announced that they're you know we we mentioned the other week that Peacock mm. is coming to the Sky platform. Well, so is Paramount Plus now. So Ooh. clearly, this is this is what they're going to do. Yeah. yeah, Paramount Plus is going to arrive. I think early next year. Um, Along I think this with is really 14 good news. South Park movies. Yeah, 14 South Park movies. Um, so this has got another like 10,000 hours of TV will just arrive and be available. I think, I think, I think it's Sky has to do this because they are definitely, in fact, one of the things that was in the Ofcom report is that Netflix is getting bigger and bigger in mm. this country, slightly a little bit maybe to the, to, to affecting Sky's subscriber base. So I think they are fighting back by having these, signing up these big American streamers, which in, in instantly giving them thousands and thousands of hours of content. And what's done hbo max no no big news on hbo max yeah so that that i think is complicated by the fact of, of sky's existing yeah, hbo yeah, deal so, right? yeah, so I don't yeah. the question i have for yeah. you is do we know when sky's relationship with hbo is up for renewal i think i, I believe it's 2022 because it feels like if they're doing these you've got to wonder if they're a little bit nervous that they're going to lose the access to HBO because HBO like that's their that's their kind of meal ticket isn't it in terms of not films but in terms of actual TV stuff HBO is where Sky get a lot of their good stuff from without HBO you've got to think that they would take a bit of a well, hit well it's its entire I'd say it's Sky's entire prestige offering right is, is yeah 100% um, the Sky Atlantic is essentially the HBO channel isn't well, it but I so. don't know where, where I mean obviously if if Warner Brothers wanted to do it as a, you know, like a Disney Plus, so a standalone mm. subscription service you have to sign up to, but obviously Sky are managing to come to an agreement with Paramount and with Peacock, which is obviously universal. Mm. Um, but I think the success of HBO Max in the States for Warner Brothers is that it is a, a direct standalone um, service uh, and, and, you know, Disney have obviously had success with that, so. Yeah, be interesting to see what happens there. I found the top 10, the, the Netflix top 10 I was talking about. Excellent, Boydie. Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually the top 10 of, yeah, of uh, streaming content, and Bridgerton is number one. Number two, you're going to love this. Uh, this. I knew there were some funny things there that made, is Crime Scene, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel. Oh, my God. Remember oh that? Oh, my God. Yes. Yeah, the true, that's the second biggest Netflix show. And um, Night Stalker, that for, to true crime, I mean, is massive, absolutely massive. Where's the Witcher? Clearly. Uh, 
not on there. What? But Fate, Fate, Fate the Winks Saga is at number eight, James. Okay, this, I, I mean, look, I love Fate the Winks Saga, but that's deranged. <laughs> I know, below Lupin. You're Lupin, probably responsible and, for and half not, of it. The amount you think you it is, it's me. It. Yeah, it's me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but number four is interesting. And this, funnily enough, this show was mentioned by none other than Chris Hewitt on the, la- on the last Empire podcast. And he had a go. I think he called you, if, if, I, may be, if I may be so bold, I think he called you a pilot TV prick or something uh, like more that. More than likely, um, yes. Superstore, Superstore, the American sitcom, which went around for five seasons and only re- recently came, which is a really good show, I have to say. It's also on ITV2 every night at seven o'clock. That was the fourth big, highest watched show in this country for British viewers on Netflix, apparently. That's cool. That is quite incredible. I have never watched it. You'll be unshocked to It's hear. a fun, well, it's a comedy, so it's well, not, quite, you know. Quite. But it is a really good show. As we yeah. know, Boyd, taste is like an arse. Divided in two, and I am definitely on the not liking side of the arse on that. Yes, yes. Right, 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 right. Shall we move on now to this week's reviews? Are and the, first up, on, this, can I interrupt? Are the two sides sure, of the arse? Go for it. Are the two sides of the arse good taste and bad taste, as opposed to like and don't like? Yes, what I like is good taste. What I don't like is bad taste. Of course, simple to of course. I, don't, I can't believe you even needed to ask that. Yeah, that's a given. Just check it. Okay, so. What If is an animation, don't hold that against it, uh, but it explores what might have happened in alternate versions of the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. For example, what if Peggy Carter had been Captain America, or what if T'Challa had been Star-Lord? Now, Boydie, what do we think of this animated series? Well, I think I can speak for everyone when I say that when um, we first heard the news that Marvel um, in, in on uh, on Disney Plus was going to launch a series in which they explored alternate realities and alternate versions kind of of what's already happened in the MCU, I thought it was a really exciting, interesting idea. And then we found out it was going to be animated. And then, of course, everyone is like instantly like 70% less excited. Um, I certainly am anyway because of our famous and slightly unfair prejudice against animation but i have to say this like for me this is a fun concept in many ways but it does feel like they sat around going what can we do in these to to, to give mc our marvel fans on disney on this massive thing we've got on disney plus new content new shows what can we come up with oh i know let's do this <laughs> let's let's explore in, in a kind of inherently self self um self-absorbed way, if you like, if you're running the whole thing, if you're Kevin Feige going, okay, we'll explore, we'll give you alternate realities, alternate versions of past stories, and it'll be fun for MCU fans. But I do think, I think if you think about it for a minute, it's like how much more exciting would this have been if it had have been live action and not animation? It just feels to me like a slightly, I mean, this is going to really offend animators, so who, but my, this is just my feeling watching it is like, it's just intrinsically less thrilling an idea. You know, imagine if they'd got, like, if I'd, if I'd have been in charge of this show, this whole idea, I would have gone, maybe do, like, smaller scale live action stories of little moments within what we've already seen in all these movies and TV shows in the MCU and do little versions of these, you know, sliding doors moments, which is what it is. Imagine if so-and-so had done so-and-so, this key moment, the whole world, the universe would have changed. But they could have done that on a smaller scale. It didn't need to be epic, huge, massive thing. It could have just been like intimate half-hour moments. It would have been lovely and interesting. As it is, after halfway through the first episode, I got the hang of it, but I'm totally not invested in it at all. I just think it's... It just feels like an exercise in, you know, in having some fun with these characters that we all know. I mean, they've got incredible voice cast, mostly 
kind of recreating the characters. But then you have moments where they're not, where it's not Robert Downey Jr. You know, doing 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 that character, doing Iron Man, and it and someone impersonating, and it becomes a bit like a bit awkward and a bit weird and they're kind of maintaining and they're trying to pretend oh no it doesn't matter that some of the voice casts aren't actual voice casts when but when 75 percent of them are then you really notice the ones that aren't and it stands out as being a bit sad so i watched the first three episodes i have to say i didn't i was got a bit bored and there's some moments there's some moments of great fun moments and you th- when certain characters come in and you think yeah that's fun um we weren't we're not allowed to spoil anything we're not barely allowed to mention any major developments but but the, but it's all meaningless anyway because it's like the sliding doors thing is kind of meaningless. The fact that they're animated makes it even more meaningless to me. So <laughs> for me, it felt like an exercise that I couldn't really get that excited about. I'm sorry. I, I feel like I should probably sort of couch this review in the fact that you are asking three people who do not enjoy animated shows to talk about an animated show, and I think what this really will highlight is how much we just don't enjoy animated shows. So it's probably our failing more than the series failing. To your point on 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 why it's animated. I kind of think it's this this kind of show. It'd be unrealistic to see this as live action because it's just like just think about, for example, episode two, which takes place entirely oh, in the Guardians scale, universe. Yeah. Like the budget yeah. required to just do that of one course, episode would be utterly right. unfeasible. Then don't do the um, idea. Sorry. No, yeah, then don't do it exactly. No, don't but do, do, it, do yeah. the idea, but find a medium where it is feasible, which is animation. So I totally get why they've gone this route. And not everyone is as completely close minded as we are when it comes to, you know, cartoons. But uh I think it's not just the medium. I th- I, I'm with you 100% on this, Boyd. I mean, I'm, my feeling is very much aligned with yours on, on animation. Um, but I think it's not just that it's animated. So on the one hand, you've got action sequences that happen. And I'm watching the action, and I was, I was going through this in my head while I was watching it. I was thinking, this action sequence on scene is boring me to death. If this were live action, I genuinely think I'd be like, this is amazing. Like, look at it. It's yeah. just so good because it would draw me in. I would access it. I would see it. I'd be able to connect with it, it the reality of it, which I struggle to do with animation. On the other hand, though, the tone of this has been shifted to fit this kind of animated format in that they go deliberately sort of wacky humor sort of side eye humor at times to try to to sort of fit in with sort of more animated medium like it's and look let's not pretend that you know the marvel films are incredibly po-faced or anything like this is not shane meadows like this is that they always have levity and they always have humor but i felt the humor in this was deliberately sort of pushed that little bit further which kind of fit this animated format look um so i think that didn't sit with me because it felt like oh this feels like and it doesn't skew young i think this is animated but it's not cartoon territory like there's some quite serious themes in this as death and all kinds of stuff so i don't think it skews young young but i think it skews a little younger like they tried to make it more accessible which you can understand this is you know fair marketing decision they can do an animated show they want to make it quite broad um and I think the ideas are interesting. The what-if comics are quite interesting. They are, as you kind of point out, quite trivial in that they don't really affect anything. It's just a kind of a little musing type thing. Um, but some of the it's ideas, you know, what if Peggy Carter had been Captain America? Yeah, it's, quite, it's, a, it's an interesting idea. It's nice to see them run with it. What would have happened to Steve Rogers if that had been the case? Uh, you know, and in the second one, what if, you know, what if T'Challa had been Star-Lord? Which is a crazy idea. But again, it plays out very differently. The fact that he would have been a very different personality. And so events would have unfolded very, very differently to Peter Quill being in that particular role. Um, so it is interesting. If you love the MCU, I think there's a lot to like here in terms of mining possibilities and crazy ideas. But 
I think you kind of just need to be able to embrace the format. Now, Chris and Helen, I, I believe, on the Empire podcast, did both watch this and very much enjoy it. I think they are perhaps less close-minded generation than we are. Um, but yeah, I was with you, Boyd. I watched it. I watched the three episodes. I was interested in the ideas of it, but I was clock-watching a lot because all of the mm. action in particular left me entirely cold because I, animated action, just for me, it's like watching Centurions on you know Saturday mornings in the 90s or 80s or whatever it was. Uh, uh, no. Well, and we should say, it's like when we review anything, right? We all have different tastes in different genres. We Some of us like documentaries more than others. Some of it, And this is like anything else, which is... It's, it's just the one thing we agree yeah, on. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's that we're not particular fans of animation. And there will be lots of people out there who, who love it and lots of people who don't. Sure. But I think the, the, the challenge is, because you... you kind of summed up for me the contradiction in in what you were just saying because on one hand you were talking about if you love the MCU you'll love this you'll get all the references you'll get all of the th- all of the riffs but then obviously you're talking about their attempts to make it broad and i think that's mm. the fundamental problem which is i'm not quite sure who this is for it did skew a bit young for me and i the thing and it sounds like a minor point but the thing about having some of the voice cast but not others I just found it really annoying because I understand the practical considerations. I understand doing this live action wise from a budget perspective, from a talent perspective, like would be the most ambitious thing in the world. But the fact that they've got some of the voice talent, but not others, the the viewer should never be aware that this is a really big ask that you actually would struggle to get Robert Downey Jr. And so it feels, it kept taking me out of it. It just felt really weird. It felt like you either have to have them or you have completely new voice cast for this and say it's a, a different thing. Um, I think, and I'm not an animation expert at all, so um, this will probably be wrong, but there was something, I suppose that the animation was kind of elegant, but there's something also weirdly almost static about it. And I think they were trying to very much stick to a comic book style. It, it is like a comic book come to life in many respects, but it just didn't do it for me. Some of the writing I didn't think was great. And that for me is the moment when it felt like it was uh, definitely skewing younger. Is mm. it touched like riffs and themes from the films, but really kind of punched them down, um, made them quite simplistic. And so the, and, and some of the voice acting was definitely more, uh, but people seemed more into it than others, let me just yes, say. <laughs> 100%. But did you not find that there were points where I was like, oh, that's, they didn't get the voice actor for that. And you think, oh, they actually did. They were just massively yeah. phoning it yeah, in. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, literally yeah, phoning it in. Yeah, there were moments I, I'm like, somebody just actually yawn at that point. It was like, is this a contractual <laughs> obligation that you don't want to do? So I, th- I, think it's, I think it's like a cute idea. And I've, I've only watched the first episode and I've heard people raving on social about the T'Challa episode you mentioned. Um, but I just think this, it, it, I find it hard for this to justify, not its existence, that's a bit harsh. But your time. But justify our time <laughs> in this, you know, there is no shortage of, of Marvel content, particularly right now. And I just think this is kind of a nice little thing, but I, it's hard to recommend it as a vital watch. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely not vital. I mean, even if you're a huge MCU fan, but it's, by definition, it's kind of superfluous. Um, but I think you do. You need to a be pretty into your MCU to even think about watching it. And if you are, you've also got to be quite 
open to animation, which a lot of people are. But if and you I are, do not judge you for if it. You are, and this is what I'm struggling with: is if you are a mega fan, I don't think this this takes it almost seriously enough. That and that's the thing with the voice talent is they did, if they don't seem asked and they couldn't get some of them as an as a MCU hardcore, you're like. What is this giving me that I'm not getting elsewhere in the MCU? Those are the people yeah. you need to like, you need to, they're the people you need to give stuff to and make this feel vital. And then if you're just, an, you've, you're not really a massive Marvel fan, I don't think you'd be able to under, understand it really. So that who is this meant to be for? Well, yeah, I, yeah, I know I what you mean actually, because it's like what I always say when we watch Lower Decks and stuff, and I'm a bit like, you know, and I say it jokingly, but I'm kind of partly not it that you know star trek for me isn't a laughing matter yes. i don't find comedy in it i take this shit really seriously and again with this like marvel's funny and it is funny but it's funny within its own universe whereas this yes. pokes fun at the universe kind of knowingly in a kind of like, oh giggle giggle bring in this character and make a funny joke about a thing they did in the film but it's like then you're just that's almost like fourth wall breaking humor and i'm like now you're almost having fun at the mcu's expense and yes it's affectionate and it's not ribbing the mcu but i'm like this is not what i'm here for because like when i watch my mcu movies i take this shit seriously yes. like you know well exactly and that's and i felt watching I'm it i'm not having a laugh no well I, I think that's a real problem i have to say and it's part of my, my my rant of a couple of weeks ago about this phase of the MCU, this whole, you know, everything is an alternate version. There are alternate versions. There are, you know, there's a million different uh, uh, different ways of, t- of telling each story. There's a million, a million different versions of each character. All of that, all the variants and everything. I think they're in danger of, of getting up their own ass uh, uh, in a really major way. And this show is not helping. Like, uh, well, don't want to spoil it, but in episode three, the arrival of a villain i found that completely risible i have to say i thought it was not like just i thought it really undermines me it really undermines somehow you know the, as you say the, the, the taking seriously of the great films that we've seen before and i i like i've watched every single mcu film and i, I really enjoy them and I, I love some of them i think this does, i don't think this does any i mean i'm if chris and helen like that's interesting but i I, I'm a fan of MCU. I'm not as obsessive as they are, but I found I it slightly undermined the whole thing to me mm-hmm. without taking it wanting to take it too seriously. But I, I think they're in danger. I think they've got like I listened to there was a podcast recently, right? With um, Mark Maron had A. O. Scott, who's the New York Times's culture film critic, and they were laying into Marvel and the MCU in that pompous way that people do. But I kind of watched this, and I think this is the kind of thing they're talking about mm. in a way. Like when they end up doing this kind of, they don't have to do everything. You don't have to have this show. You know, I don't know. It, it feels really not only pointless, but slightly, slightly in danger of affecting my affection for the rest of the stuff. I think Marvel is a broad church, though, with an incredibly sort of broad age range of fans. And it may be that, you know, at the lower end of the age range, people will get a kick out of this. Uh, or Chris and Helen will just get a kick out of this. It's it's it's, it's hard to say. But uh, either way, What If does arrive on Disney Plus on Wednesday, August the 11th. Uh, and if you're wondering why this podcast has gone out a day later than normal, it's because the embargo lifted on Tuesday. So that is why. Um, but let's move on to the next show this week, which is Deceit, Channel 4's Deceit. This is a four-part drama looking at the controversial true story of the operation to catch the killer of Rachel Nickel in 1992. Uh, Neve Algar stars as an undercover officer who baits the hook to lure out her murderer. Isn't that right, Terry? Okay, so at the top of this podcast, I said to Boydie before we started recording, I think we might disagree about one of this week's show, and this might be it. I'm fascinated to see what happens. There is so much to talk about with this show. So when I first heard about this, 
And, you know, this is a very famous case, especially for people of our age. So this is based on the 1992 murder of Rachel Nickell on Wimbledon Common, who um, was found stabbed to death with her two-year-old son clinging onto her body. I remember it really well. I was 13. It was on the front page of every tabloid um, for weeks and weeks and weeks. And it was, you know, she was incredibly attractive, blonde. It was in daylight, in, in an open space. It was kind of like a worse nightmare, I think, in many respects. And obviously, the tabloids have been well known to fetishize certain types of women um, being murdered in this way. I mean, there's Mm. so much around this to get into, but I suppose actually rather than the murder, what this focuses on is how and why Colin Stagg, who was the, essentially became the prime suspect very quickly. He was named in a a crime watch reconstruction. Somebody rang in and said, I think it's him. And this essentially sparked... The focus of the investigation very quickly became him at the exclusion of everybody else. And then they launched what they called Operation Edsel, which is the honey trap investigation to try and get Colin Stagg to either confess or to get evidence that he had killed Rachel. Now, but let's do first things first, because Neve Algar, who plays the detective, and we should say, actually, there are a couple of caveats with this, which is, and this comes up on the screen in the first episode, This is based on very, very deep research by the writer and executive producer, Amelia DiGirolamo. Now, they have, obviously, this detective was undercover, has been granted lifelong anonymity since um, it all happened. So she's known as Lizzie James, because that was what the pseudonym under which she was writing to Colin Stagg. In this um, TV show, she's called Sadie Byrne. But they've changed a few details to protect her identity, particularly about her personal life. And they do warn at the start that other parts have been fictionalised for dramatic purposes. So you're dealing with kind of a lot of facts and a lot of truth, but also some supposition. And I think that's really important to say. So playing Sadie slash Lizzie is Neve Algar. And I must have talked about it before on this podcast, which is she is a incredible actor so virtues obviously censor which is out soon she is phenomenal and she is great in this with some but big butts which are coming um rounding out the cast you've got theon daniel young who plays colin stagg harry treadaway who's di keith pedder who was the lead detective who then brought on sadie as the undercover police officer and then you have Eddie Marsan as the criminal psychologist, Paul Britton. In, I mean, Eddie Marsan, I think, is, is an incredible actor, but this is one of his more memorable hmm. performances, and we'll, we'll get into why in a minute. Now, there are a few important things to say in this, which is I did a lot of reading around this because I'm kind of fascinated by the way that it's been presented. Because Amelia, who I just mentioned, the writer and exec producer, she wrote a column um, for a website where she spoke about how she'd chosen to depict this drama from a unique female viewpoint, but not the victim. So she makes the point that usually in crime stories, crime dramas, whatever they are, the only women represented usually as the pivotal point of view is victims. So she has obviously chosen to focus on the detective at the heart of the honey trap 
So a lot of it is around the mindset of her going in, the context within which she was working. So very quickly, you have her on another kind of case and her not being given the proper credit for it. There's clear, good old-fashioned 1990s sexism that she's dealing with. There's clearly a conversation about duty of care to police officers. And she speaks of it explicitly as being a feminist take because she's showing this unique perspective. Now, I totally get that intellectually. And obviously, that's stuff I'm normally super, super, super interested in. But what I I can't get over with this drama is that it has to be an empathetic take too, because this is not fiction. This is the real life story of several people. And the I understand why she felt like that was a unique perspective, but all the way through, I only watched the first episode. I honestly, I, I carved out time to watch at least two and I felt unable to carry on watching it after the first episode. And that's because at the heart of this crime drama, which crime drama is a true crime story, which is a woman who was slaughtered in front of her child, you know, a two-year-old son, fan clinging to her body. Take them out of it. You've got Colin Stagg, the man who essentially had his entire life destroyed. There is so much tragedy in this story. And it's very well known that because they weren't, um, because her real killer went undetected, that other another woman and child was actually murdered. So for me, there's something unsettling about this, which is the focus on this woman at the heart of it, because this tragedy has a lot of victims. And I understand trying to show this perspective that hasn't been shown before, which is, you know, a a police officer who's dealing with structural sexism within her job and doesn't get the right kind of support and isn't fairly treated and all of that, but it just pales into insignificance of every other note of tragedy in this terrible, terrible, terrible story. And then there are some filmmaking choices which made me really uncomfortable. So when you see Colin Stagg in the first episode... And, you know, everybody talks about him being odd and all these things. And I understand if that's the way he was, then you will show that. But I think he's shown twice in total and it's kind of in darkness in this creepy room. There's like what looks like a red filter on the lens. There's a scene where he kind of goes to the kitchen, pulls out a knife and starts stroking it, almost like he's masturbating the knife. And it's it's kind of weird knowing what we what we know about what happened next and about his role in it and all of that is I and I don't know if they were trying to kind of place how we how how other people perceived him or why he seemed weird to other people but it was it felt really odd to me to show him like that and I just felt really uncomfortable all the way through I didn't particularly enjoy it and there's a weird tone to this that just made me super 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 uncomfortable um i should mention to be fair that um the column by amelia also mentioned that they had the support of rachel's son and his father and other victims and that they worked closely with colin stagg and harry treadaway in the making of this i don't know if colin stagg's seen it or what he he thinks but I, I just want to make the point that the filmmakers have clearly worked with due care and due diligence and tried to ensure that people feel comfortable. But as a viewer, I felt massively uncomfortable 
Um, and then we always have this conversation, right, which is around true crime and entertainment, about the responsibility, about the tonal decisions you make, about how you present people, about the perspectives you tell. And, you know, when we talked about the Sophie documentaries and I was talking about, you know, how you show female victims of crime and all of this. So I feel like this is a really live discussion and you definitely will have not seen a story told from this perspective. I just am not convinced that it's the perspective that it should have been told from. Well, I a hundred percent agree. A hundred percent agree. And well, that's fact, anticlimactic. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, and yeah, and in fact, I would go further to say that. So I right. So I watched the first episode uh, late last week, and Channel Four had a uh, virtual Q and A for this. So they had a Q and A, online Q and A, Zoom Q and A with the writer who talked about the uh, producer um, and some of the cast. Neval Girl was there. Harry Treadaway was there. And um, it was introduced by the person, the woman who commissioned it at Channel 4. And um, there was a weird, like this, uh, what if, it was this massive disconnect because I had exactly the same thoughts as you did having watched episode one. I was like, this is not, this is, th th my thoughts the, having watched episode one were, they've made a really bold decision here to make this a heavily stylized Seven Meets Silence of the Lambs style thriller, lich thriller, Bathed in green, mm. murky green light. I mean, I don't think there's one <laughs> shot practically in this whole thing that isn't bathed in murky green light like Seven. And I always often bang on about how Seven visually established how all serial killer um, stories should be t are, t are told, not should be, but are told on TV and film. And, and this is even more so than usual. Um, and very, as you say, this performance, it's Harry Treadaway. The first time we meet Harry Treadaway's character, who remember, it's based on a real detective who I believe is still still alive, is literally twirling his moustache in in a kind of almost pantomime villain manner. And then I watched this. So I watched that, and then I watched this Channel Four um, uh, Q and A, and they were all talking about it. As indeed you talked about that that the the um, writer's article about it, like. You know, they've taken great care, and I'm sure they have. I'm not having a go at them. <laughs> they've taken great care in doing the right thing, blah, 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 blah. But the disconnect between the, the actual reality of watching this show and the, uh, and the fact that they've got all the – I mean, I must I, – I have to I, I get Colin Stang involved in all of that. I wonder – so my – I'm fascinated cause I, as to whether they – you know the script, reading the script, and um, getting in a sense of the, what the whole point of this series is, which, as you say, is is very much all about what it's like being this poor woman who's sent into the honey trap, etc. And the reality of watching it, and interestingly, it's directed by Niall McCormack. And the last two things that Niall McCormack directed, right, were the sister. Yeah. Do you remember that show with Russell Tovey, right? And um, the victim, yes. which was a really good, which was a really good um, thriller. But he is a thriller. He's direct. He's brilliant at direct. He's at directing atmospheric, you know, quite pulpy. I think it's fair to say thrillers, and he's brought that style to this true story. And I think it's a real. I just think it's a mistake. I'm sorry. I think it's a real error. And I feel. I felt very un. Yeah, it felt very queasy watching it. And I've watched the whole thing. So I then when I watched the Q and A, I thought, well, I've got to give it. You know, I've got to carry on watching it. And the writer said, she was kind of asked, why did you decide to um, show everything in a kind of very, you know, in, a, in this way where when you meet Colin Stagg, he's this, he, you, you would be forgiven for thinking he is this really creepy, nasty, weird guy. And she said, well, she wanted to show it from 
the point of view of um, everyone assuming that that's what he was like and jumping to conclusions. So you're like, so the viewer is taking the point of view of the police, if you like, and what, and and she's giving us, she's giving, she's she's almost allowing us to jump to the same conclusions as the as those people involved to see why they jumped to those conclusions based on that he was a bit weird and a bit eccentric, and he did have interests in stuff that you know seem unseemly and tawdry to some to, to, if you were investigating the crime, right? That was her kind of explanation of it. But I have to say, having watched the whole thing, and in the end, it's dedicated. This is not spoiled. It's dedicated to the victims. Of the crimes of, of of the real killer, right? But it left the whole thing did leave a, 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 a nasty taste in my mouth, and I just think the decision to make it so stylized that there are two, not one, but two psycho style shower scenes in which Neve Algar's character thinks she's going to be attacked by some bloke, and that and that's not and there's various explanations as to why. I mean, not one but two, like. And and as I say, the whole this whole I I watched another true crime show as it happens that I can't talk about because it's embargoed. That I've even seen it, um, and that was told in a very straightforward, you know, kind of uh, almost documentary style, and very calm, very you know nothing you know a, a very kind of um, tasteful is is the word way. And I, then I watched this, and I think it's this. I I just think, and they the Channel Four commissioner said, you know, we, we have to if you're going to do crime, true, true, true crime on Channel Four, you have to think of another true Channel Four way of doing it. And I'm thinking, I don't know if you do. I think if you want to tell this story, even if you want to focus, I mean, I agree what Terry was saying about how weird it is. I think it is. I agreed completely that even though you're telling this feminist story about, and there's lots of t stuff about what it was like in the '90s with lad culture and all of that, and how she was treated. But even if you even if you accept that that it's going to be told from her point of view, the point of view of this um, undercover policewoman, to tell it in this way, in this weird, in this heavily stylized, um, uh, pulpy way, I think is just a mistake. I just think I'm sorry. I I think it's I think it don't think it works. And the only explanation I can imagine is that, that, that is that you know is that the police involved almost like you know began to see it in that way and they began to the way they were you know, well all right but. Presenting it like this on TV, it, it's just, it just feels wrong. It feels like a big bowl of wrong to me. Yeah, I found it, I found it really uncomfortable to watch. Yeah, yeah. so did I. I had a, an utterly miserable time watching it, and I will never, ever watch another episode of it. We've talked about this for quite a while already, but I don't think I have anything new to add to it. But yes, I found it a not at all pleasant watch. Not one for me. However, this airs on Channel 4 from Friday, August the 13th at 9pm. And finally, this week we have a tonal shift to heels, uh, which I guess gives Terry and I an excuse to continue the wrestling deep dive we did last week. Uh, this is created by Loki writer Michael Waldron, and it's the story of brothers Jack and Ace Spade, both pro wrestlers, but one's a face and one's a heel, which is goody and baddie if you're not familiar with the wrestling parlance. Um, played, of course, by Arrows, Stephen Amell, and Vikings, Alexander Ludwig. Uh, Boydie, was this one a big splash? Or a power bomb. <laughs> that's good because those are both those are both, uh, both, both wrestling moves. That's, very that's good. funny. This reminded me of um, uh, you've seen the Stephen Merchant wrestling film "Fighting with My Family," which is indeed about, yes, yeah, the real life um, British kind of page, so, yeah, page, um, and they created their own. She came from a family and they created their own little WWE thing um, mm. for the local audience and became a phenomenon. And then she joined the actual one and starring Florence Pugh. It was, I love that film anyway. I think it's a really um, lovely piece of work. And this is kind of a bit like the American version of that, where there's a family-run thing. The father who started it dies. Um, and then 
Stephen Mel's character Jack takes over as the older brother and his younger brother, as you said, played by Alexander Ludwig. Um, they have a they have a challenging, so we say, sibling relationship. And I think at the centre of it is this idea of what it must be like to have I mean that, there was sibling rivalry in the Stephen Merchant film which I thought he dealt with very interestingly this is real This so that is, was a kind of you know pretty much a comedic thing, comedic film this is kind of it has comedic moments but it's also um, but it's more serious it's more dramatic and I think t- t- you know it's almost like the wrestling element of it which is which is you know feels incredibly authentic and I know that Stephen Amell has been involved in wrestling himself and everyone I think involved is, is completely immersed in that world and it felt totally real all of that you know, from the actual wrestling m- matches that you saw glimpses of to the whole, to the kind of um, other people involved who come in and out, the, the supporting cast, if you like, to the way that Stephen Amell's character, Jack, he is writing the scripts for these for, for these bouts and he's trying to keep the audience's interest and fascinated in, 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 you know, in working out whether it's better for the, for the heel to win or the face to win. Um, and at the same time, deal with a massive ego of his massive, huge bell end <laughs> of a brother who is an, a complete fucking prick. That's what if I know it. And there's a scene where he goes into a local kind of convenience store and it's horrendously horrible and bullying to the poor woman who runs it. And that's the kind of scene that shows you how, what, and he thinks, it's, you know, he doesn't even barely even realise that he's being a complete bully. And, and, um, and I just think it's very interesting, that relationship between the two of them. How do you deal with a, the, the tensions between these siblings where one of them has more power than the other, but actually, in a way, the other one also has power because he's the more popular wrestling character out of the two of them. And how that is going to play out, I think, is a really clever, smart, kind of genuinely involving and interesting um, uh, w- a way of establishing this narrative and at the same time i thought the supporting character really good mary mccormack pops up as the kind of woman who's helping to run uh the whole thing the, the whole um wrestling league the duffy wrestling league and i just thought it and, and it's a kind of a little bit look at american culture you don't see it's a working class culture and i think in a way stars and stars play a little bit specialising in this kind of thing now, telling stories of, of working class people. I think a lot of their shows deal with that kind of thing. It's funny, when we decided to review this, Terry, I think this is not Terry Tales I've got, it was like, well, you know, how many people, I'm paraphrasing, how many people are going to watch it and we're going to say, oh, we quite liked it and, you know, how much, how newsworthy is that going to be? I really liked it. I think I liked it a lot more than I expected to like it. I think everyone involved is really good in it. I think Stephen Amell and Alan would look bigger great. I think the, the whole premise is really interesting. I wanted to carry on watching it, but I didn't have time. So... I'm fully on board with heels. I, I was really surprised by how good it was. Terry. Oh, God. I really didn't like it. I just <laughs> oh, thought really? it, was, I okay. it was cheesy and broad. Oh, and then so it, good. And totally <laughs> weird, like a very explicit sex scene popped up that I was oh, not yeah. expecting. Um Oh, and when I was watching it, I was like, you motherfucker, James Dyer. We could have been watching Modern Love Season 2. Uh, so, I mean, and... and on paper, it should interest me because, and I think the fighting uh, with my family comparison is is the right one. But for me, fighting with my family had real heart. Like you, be- like fully believed in in rooted for that family. And I don't know, maybe it's because it's so American. But and you know, and I find the whole the faces and the heels interested and the bleeding of you know the stuff me and James were talking about the other week, fact and fiction, as in yeah. life in and outside of the ring and writing that story where you're actually are you writing your life and how much do you fall into the characters you've been prescribed and blah blah blah, 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 blah. but you know <laughs> the, the women of this show yeah just, this is fair right it's like so underwritten 
Well, they're just they're just tip they're archetypes. Southern women, Southern, American yeah. drivers. So yeah, you've got hundred percent. Alison Luff is his wife, Stacey, who, you know, she's got to worry about money and those damn kids. And then you've got his, and Mary McCormack, who I love, but, you know, she's the straight talking broad. I mean, it's just, they're, they're very broad brushstokes. And I just, and I was I was thinking maybe it'll just pull me in with a bit of cheese and I, can't, and I was just not getting along with it at all. No. That Thank really you. disappointed me. I really hoped you'd like this and it would turn no. you around and vindicate my choice and us watching it. Because I, I I, really like this like Boyd did. I'm definitely going to watch more of this. I just thought it was great. And I, I thought it was a fascinating look at kind of like, partly, as Boyd says, that sort of small town, you know, working class sort of snapshot. But also just the love of wrestling is kind of baked into this show's DNA. Like the people making it love it, the writing it loves it. Like it's all about that. And, you know, the on camera the off camera stuff the fact that you know the decent hard-working family man who writes all the scripts is the heel and his douchebag younger brother is kind of the face but i love just the idea that he sits down and watching him script it and it's it's there's a part of this that feels and look we all know the kayfabe stuff is nonsense like anyone watching wrestling can see it's a fucking panto like that's obvious but there's still something almost voyeuristic about watching him sit down and write the script for what will happen in the ring for what will exactly be said like he bollocks his younger brother for going off script Look you know you i love it i love it and like he's wrestling with it he's talking he's thinking like you know what's going to happen we're going to have this big ticket event it's going to be big two brothers versus each other you know and he's like well the younger brother do we want this to happen how do we want it to end and then how it obviously does end in the end which is very interesting i loved it and the idea that they're a small wrestling startup and what will happen, you know, when, when wrestlers sell out and go corporate and join, presumably, the WWE or whatever it is. Um, and I, I found it fascinating. And actually, I went down a, a bit of a rabbit hole having watched this on Wikipedia. Just, you know, obviously, I don't, I haven't followed WWE properly for, for a long time. But just looking at, you know, the different eras of the WWE from the WWF years to the Attitude Era, where it skewed slightly older, to the feuding with WCW and when the WWE bought out WCW. And looking at that corporations sort of like growth to dominate sort of wrestling entertainment and to crush smaller exhibitors and it's properly cutthroat and interesting and there's a part of me that actually would quite like to see that story told but but yeah i i i, I really enjoyed this and i really enjoyed my subsequent deep dive and i really wanted to go back and watch more of this i thought it was so much fun and i thought Stephen amel is really really good in it uh and bjorn bjorn ironside also very very good in his role but yeah i I, I had loads of fun. I genuinely, if you'd, you'd asked me, I would have genuinely bet that you'd have liked this, Terry. I'm very I disappointed in you. Honestly, as it opened, I was like, fuck no. <laughs> <laughs> I think you didn't like this because I made us watch it. I mean, yeah, maybe. <laughs> I mean, the female oh. characters are barely one-dimensional. That yes. is, that is so far yeah. anyway. I mean, you know, very, maybe very be fleshed out. Drawn. It, but yeah, but so far, yeah. But um, la- no, I, lazy archetyping. But I thought there, the ending but, uh, of the first episode lady, was great. You just said lady, <laughs> lazy archetype, oh. lazy lady archetyping, lady, lazy ladies. <laughs> I thought you were like lady, lady archetyping. No, lazy lady archetyping. <laughs> but yes, I suppose yeah. The ending of that episode is uh, yeah, it's got yeah. a great end. The first episode does. And CM but Punk is in it. I mean, you know, CM Punk fun, is yeah. in it. Who doesn't want to watch a TV show with CM Punk <laughs> well, no, in it? Is that. <laughs> well. 
Heels will be on Stars Play, so no one will obviously watch it, but Heels starts on Sunday, August the 15th on Stars Play. But there are some other things out this week. Ghosts returns to BBC One, uh, or I should say returned to BBC One yesterday, yes. which was Monday, August 9th at 8.30pm. We do love Charlotte Ritchie and we do love Ghosts, so that is an excellent sitcom. Uh, Star Trek Lower Decks returns for its second season on Friday, August the 13th, and also on Friday, uh, as Terry alluded to earlier, and what she would much rather have watched, Amazon Modern Love, the romantic anthology show, also returns for a second season uh, on Friday too. Um, what else is there, Boydie? Uh, I think that's probably it, really. Yeah, I think that's the main. That's is the there main a new thing. Riverdale starting? I'm uh, sensing the, there's a new Riverdale. I think it's picking up. Yeah, a second like, half, isn't it? Second yeah, half B. Of the season. Yeah. Oh, uh, there's yeah. a thing called Flatbush Misdemeanors on Sky Comedy from Thursday, which is a Brooklyn set thing about rising um, comedians, like stand-up comedians, which looks quite interesting. Okay. And Why um, Women Kill is back as why well women on Alibi. Why Women Kill is back with Nick Frost yeah, yeah, on Alibi. Yeah. Season um, two on the 12th. And I think that just about covers it. Yeah. Well, my pick of the week is Heels. And I'm just going to go right ahead and say that. Yeah, same with me. Um, but, yeah. I mean... I mean, what was no, that thing I you don't... watched in the early hours, Terry? That's your pick of the week. Oh yeah, why did you kill me? <laughs> Modern Love, by the way, I've watched. Have you watched any of the episodes? I, I, I haven't some really yet. Good, no, there's some really good episodes. So mm. Terry's pick is Modern Love, which we could have reviewed if you haven't. If you hadn't, <laughs> my pick is Modern Love, even though I haven't seen it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, as I recall, I liked Modern Love season one much more than the two of you. Uh, yeah, maybe. I think, but maybe. it does depend which ones you decide to watch. Because yeah, that's it, isn't ten, it? Yeah. It's because some of them are great, and yeah. some of them are a bit meh. But, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Andrew, watch Andrew Rannell's one. Rannell's from um, Girls, etc. And his one is great. Mm, there's so, one with Kit Harrington on a train. Yeah, which I enjoyed as well. Yeah. Accent involved yes. in that. <laughs> anyway, I think we're done. So that's another episode of the Pilot TV podcast in the bag. And if that's not worth a five star rating on Apple Podcast, then I don't know what is. Uh, we are all three of us available. Uh, for birthdays and private parties on social media at James C. Dye, at Terry underscore White and at Boyd Hilton. Next week, we'll be heading to the tropics for The White Lotus, a show that our very own Boyd Hilton gave, spoiler, five stars in the latest issue of Empire, so we know where he's going to fall on that particular one. But just to keep things interesting, Terry will probably hate it. Plus, we'll be watching Nicole Kidman take a crack at Leanne Moriarty's novel Nine Perfect Strangers, a book that Russell T. Davis on this very podcast said was balls or words to that effect. But don't let that put you off, people. Don't let that put you off because, as you know, taste is like an arse. And you can discover which buttock that show falls under on next week's show. Pilot out.